If you have a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, the passage is printed in the, uh, the handout, and also uh, there are Bibles in the seats there. Feel free to use those. And it's on page um, 1,716 in those Bibles. Part of a series on the book of Colossians, we started at the New Year really with the New Year resolution to know God better and apply that knowledge to every area of our lives. And, uh, and that's Paul's chief concern when he's writing this letter to um, a, a young church, a church comprised of a number of uh, Gentile believers, that is those people who hadn't grown up in the, uh, the Jewish faith or familiar with the scriptures. And so they're wrestling with what it means to be um, a Christian. And Paul has this concern that they would grow up uh, into a maturity in Christ, that they would know Christ, and it would transform their lives. The passage uh, begins with verse 6 here today, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this word that you have given us, that you have preserved for us, and that you teach us through. Would you teach us here this morning that our our eyes would be open, our hearts uh, open to hear, to see, to receive uh, this truth that comes from you, and that you would give us uh, both direction and strength for the, uh, the call in our lives you've, you've placed on each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul is um, something of a master of the mixed metaphor. We sometimes just read right over it, but did you catch that he was instructing uh, his audience here to first walk in him, and then second to be rooted, and then third to be built up in him. So if you're a fan of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, maybe you picture a tree walking, an ent walking, and the roots being something of, a, of, of legs and feet for the, the thing. But, but the, those two illustrations don't work together. To walk is the opposite of being rooted, and furthermore, to be built up. It's not uh, speaking of growing or a large tree, it's actually speaking of a building being built. But what Paul is trying to say in this, these, these multiple metaphors is that the Christian life requires a steadfastness, a stableness, a rootedness that also involves a building upon other things and an active an active outworking of this faith and and even practice 
and, and, and that our, our faith and our life is established as we walk through life, experiencing the things of life. And through those experiences, we, we grow, as he says in another place, in our powers of discernment. We grow in our ability to understand and apply the instructions that Christ gives us. These illustrations also point us to an active Christian life that is more than just following the rules or doing the things that we know we are supposed to do. Paul says that we are to walk not just in a manner worthy of Christ, as other places in Scripture say, walk in a way that's right, but that we walk in Christ, being united with Christ always connected with him. And so the Christian life is a thing of affection for Christ. The building up of a relationship with Christ. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We have been united with Christ, almost like a a marriage kind of union. Of course, it's used elsewhere in the scripture And what Paul is trying to establish in these believers is a relationship with Christ that will guard them and warn them against false teachings in other places in life. Jonathan Edwards, famous Christian theologian, American theologian from around the time, a little bit before the time of the American Revolution, probably the most famous of all um, American theologian, certainly, and one of, one of the greatest of, of all times, known for his doctrine, known to be, of course, a little bit forceful in the pulpit at times, and even, uh, even accused of being a fire and brimstone preacher, although he was a great preacher of grace. Being challenged in some of his writing, and also with a great healthy marriage that he had with his wife, He wrote a book on not just doctrine, but on uh, what he called the religious affections. A Christian's heart that is turned toward God. It's a beautiful book. It shows the heart, his own heart, that drove these doctrines. He spoke in there of what true Christian fortitude is being established against against the, the things that would chip away at our faith or destroy our faith or, 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 or prevent us from having faith altogether. Here's, here's a few words from that book. The true Christian fortitude, being rooted or established in the language that Paul's using, true Christian fortitude consists in strength of mind through grace exerted in two things. First, in ruling and suppressing the evil and unruly passions and affections of the mind. Catch that first in ruling and suppressing the evil and unruly ruly passions and affections of the mind. That is all those natural desires that we have that feed the self, that use other people for our own purposes, that, um, that, 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 uh, that, that seek um, human pleasure at the expense of others, and ultimately at the expense of our own lives. And what I uh, term later in your outline, if you're looking at that, is sort of the pagan pleasures that, uh, that Paul is speaking of in part in this warning. 
But then second, second he says, and instead fastly and freely exerting and following good affections and dispositions without being hindered by sinful fear or the opposition of enemies. So on the one hand, you have the first, the, the negative warning, warning against doing something, certain things, setting our affections on the things that would tear away our lives and take away our freedom. Paul uses this language in this passage here today. He says, be careful that you're not ca- taken captive by these, these, uh, these evil um, uh, or deceitful thoughts, these, these empty, empty thoughts, empty deceitful thoughts or, or philosophies. But then also he says that you are setting your heart on your, your heart's affections on the things that truly give you life. It's a picture of what faith is, the Christian life turning away from sin and turning toward God. The picture is, is presented from the very beginning of this passage uh, where he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, speaking of a conversion experience that the, that the believer experiences, a turning away from our own passions and setting our heart toward God, so now walk in him. Paul's concerned, first, that we have that conversion experience, and second, that we continue to walk in that and develop that and grow in that into maturity. And Edwards helpfully uses the, 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 the phrases of a turning of our affections, recognizing that some affections will lead in a path that leads to death and some affections lead in a path that leads to life. And what results from that, those affections is, in Edwards' words and really Paul's words as well, a fortitude a fortitude in life, a a steadfastness that is able to walk and be rooted and be built up all at the same time. Now, I was trying to think of ways to illustrate that, and the the best thing I could think of that uh, kind of the opposite of that, the thing that is is large and and perhaps uh, built up, is like the, the giant pieces of seaweed you see in the, uh, the, on the beach in certain times of the year when you go. Just massive plants that have grown but are never rooted and are tossed to and fro by all kinds of waves. They have no control of their own. They're just tossed by the waves and they end up discarded on the beach. Things that are growing but not necessarily rooted and strong. And this passage in particular is focused on warning the Colossian hearers first, the, 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 the original audience, but then second, by extension, all of Christians, as this has been preserved in, in, in Scripture, all of Christians to not be that type of seaweed being tossed to and fro, particularly by, hear what he says in, in verse 8, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So first, notice that the po- on the positive, that according to Christ, all of this is grounded and rooted in a person. It's grounded and rooted in this uh, relationship with Christ 
through whom we have a relationship with God himself because God is, Christ is the fullness of God in human form. So if we are in this relationship with God, it's all centered around this affection for God himself and not simply on a set of rules or on a set of uh, things to do or, or, or religious practices. And that's exactly where Paul goes. And a lot of people take this passage and preach on through the end of verse 15, where he talks about being circumcised with circumcision not made with hands. He talks about being baptized with Christ. What he's getting at there and, and why I stopped short of that, he's getting at um, this initiate, these initiation practices. So circumcision and baptism are initiation rites into the kingdom of God, and he's saying that you have been initiated into not just this group or this practice or this set of things, you have been initiated into a relationship with Christ and forever united with him. And so that's first and foremost that this is always a relationship with Christ and setting our affections on Christ. But now Paul warns them to not be taken captive Use an imagery that, that's, that's stark. I mean, this, this should jump out at you that he's saying you can be taken slave, enslaved by these philosophies and empty deceit. Now, what does that mean? Philosophy first. This is not saying that uh, to read Kierkegaard or uh, Plato or Aristotle is against Christian practice. That philosophy is some kind of evil practice and, and only biblical study is, is of merit. The, the, the term here, philosophy, it's, it's not used oftentimes in the scripture, but essentially what it means is, is the, the, the cultivating of ideas or, 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 or philosophies for life or, or the collection of that, the, the, the practice of it. And so it's speaking generally. So even the Jewish practice was oftentimes called various philosophies of Jewish practice. And even the Christian teaching might be called a philosophy. But it's a particular type of philosophy or a particular type of empty deceit. Empty deceit is more of a, an intentional leading astray as opposed to philosophy, which is more of a plausible kind of argument, uh, an idea. So, so you have two things there. Philosophy is something that's plausible. And then you have just this, this intentional deceit that is empty. But out, these two things can stem from one of two main places, Paul says. And the first one is out of human tradition. And the second one is according to the out of or out of the elemental spirits of the world. Now, human tradition doesn't need a lot of explanation. We can all think of places where uh, human tradition has established certain practices, principles in life, some of them that are very helpful and others of them that are particularly uh, unhelpful and distracting ultimately in, in life in, in general. The question of what the elemental spirits is is a little bit more complex question. It's something that's used multiple times in Scripture, not a ton, but it's a, uh, more of an open debate on what these elemental spirits of the world uh, might be. And Paul uses this phrase later in this, this book in, in verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Elemental 
There's a word that you probably recognize. It's a scientific word. Elements come from it. It refers to, in ancient Greek thought in this time period, it refers to the building block things of culture. It could refer to the, the alphabet, the Greek alphabet that it was used to, to, to write words. We refer to, at other places, the known or the, the believed elements of the time, earth, wind, fire, and uh, water. And uh, they were the things that, from which other things were built. It's not entirely consistent in the scripture that it always seems to mean exactly the same thing. But the basic idea that's getting communicated here is, is two things. One, first off, it's the, it's the stuff of earth. It's the building blocks of earth, of, of the material existence. Paul, when he says of the world, he's talking about this earthly existence, not in a way that says that, that the, uh, the physical is bad and the, the spiritual is good. That was more from Plato than it was from Christ. But still, it's a way of looking at life that only looks at the world and the material existence around us and ignores the existence or the possibility of an existence of God. And so it builds up a power and a philosophy that is established only by what is seen, can be observed. And I say it's not just a philosophy, but it's, it's even a power. And so he says later, right, when he says in verse 10 here, you've been filled in him who is the head in all of... Uh, Head, who is the head of all rule and authority, rule and authority power can be built up from below, from the world, or it can be built up from Christ. And what Paul's saying is that Christ has all authority over everything, both things seen and unseen. But the, 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 the philosophy that can lead you astray that's based on the elemental spirits is a philosophy of power and authority that is built up only on what is seen. Only on what is seen. And so it's built up on these, these elemental spirits. Now, that can take a t couple of different forms that we'll look at. And I want to just look at how these false teachings or this, uh, this philosophy and empty deceit that comes on the one hand from human tradition, on the other hand from the things that are seen, the things that are uh, the elemental spirits of the world, can subtly and not so subtly eat away at a Christian's faith and practice, at a Christian's life, to actually uh, rob us of life and enslave us uh, through those things. So the first, the first thing that I want us to see is is what is generally considered more of a a, a, a gross uh, practice of of open uh, um, antagonism toward God. It's it's what Paul and and other New Testament writers kind of saw as a pagan practice. It was a general Roman uh, approach to living life fully. It had some ethical practices, but it was really centered on building up the individual and seeking the power of the individual. And Paul speaks about this in chapter 3 of Colossians when he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now here's where he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, he, he uses language of the old and new, referring back to that conversion we talked about. Uh, um, if, if you once walked, uh, but now you must put them all away. Skipping to verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. All of these things are experiencing something of a renaissance in today's economy. If you listen to, uh, I listen to certain radio programs, especially thing, NPR and, and programs like Radio Lab, that uh, that that try to find some kind of ethical value in things like envy or covetousness. The 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 idea is that some of these things, many of these things, actually are things that benefit us because they protect us from other people. They give us motivation to live out life, to, to work hard. It's really consistent with a lot of the philosophy that was going on in Paul's day of saying, take what is yours, take whatever you can get, seek out all of the good things in life, live life to the fullest. This life is all that you have. And so it promotes open sexual practice, having unchecked passions, wanting what your neighbor has, acting in anger and with obscene talk uh, when, when, it, when it suits you and it can, can lead to what you want. What Paul is saying is that these things, these things gently, sometimes not, not so gently, will eat away at your life and steal a life that God has made you for. He says, rather, he goes on talking about putting on the new self, put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, what the philosophy that Paul is wanting to promote and what Christ has taught us to have is a philosophy that first puts on love above these other things and love seeks the benefit of others before ourselves. Now, this is, of course, not an unattractive thing to the world around us. And in fact, when most people experience this kind of genuine love, it turns hearts and minds toward another person in a way that most people rarely experience in life. That we would see compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. And most of us are afraid to exercise many of these things, afraid that other people will walk over us. And what Paul is saying 
is that if you are in Christ and have experienced what the love of Christ offers you in all these things, God made flesh who extends all of these things to you, you can then turn and extend these things to other people in a way that is willing to experience an abuse in response at times. doesn't mean you keep offering that, extending that to people who continually abuse it, but in other ways, in some ways, you may continue to do that. Part of what Paul is saying is that our lives will be transformed, that we, that, that we need to understand that if people are promoting these types of what I called pagan practices uh, as, as the core of, of the philosophy of life, recognize them for what they are based on the elemental spirits, the building blocks of the material world, things that we can see, and not according to the authority that has been given to Christ. Now, the second thing that he warns against is a little bit more subtle, and, and all of these kind of get gradually uh, more and more subtle in the Christian life. And the second thing that he's warning against is a religious practice that is based largely on human tradition, in particular at the time when this is being written on the practice that was that was being brought into the Christian life, into the Gentile world from the Jewish culture. And it had a lot to do with these initiations, in particular circumcision, and whether the question of whether male children who were born into this family and male adults who were converted over to the Christian faith had to be circumcised. But it extended to a number of other things that included recognition of certain festivals and days and Sabbaths, he goes there in verse 16 of chapter 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, these are things that had come from God. They had been given, most of these things had been given to the Jewish people as not only ways of being initiated into the culture, but ways of continuing in the culture. They were community building things, but more than just building community and a sense of fellowship with others, they were markers. They set you apart. If you went to the festival, you were identifying yourself as a follower of God of this Jewish teaching. And so what some were teaching the church in Colossae was that if you are a follower of Christ, you still need to identify yourself by these certain things. What you eat, what you attend, whether you're circumcised. And so there where Paul says, um, you know, they, they, these things have an appearance of wisdom. We read earlier, do not handle, do not touch. These refer to these various things. Now, for us today, we don't really have too many of those questions. Maybe some of you asked that question when you, a male child was born and whether I should circumcise them or not. But that's not even really a question that has to do with identifying with Christian faith anymore. But for us, this question enters into various practices of our Christian life when we ask questions of should we do certain things because traditions before us have done those things. And even more subtly when things become matters of a legalistic following of Christ 
following certain practices that ultimately are disconnected from that relational affection that Paul wants his readers and, and us, God wants us to feel for Christ, that we would have a heart that yearns for Christ. It's never disconnected from the right practices. It's never disconnected from an understanding of the word and who Christ really is but that is also on guard of the subtle ways that we create a a legalistic identification of ourselves with Christ that doesn't really have a true heart that longs for Christ, that loves Christ, a true heart that is also loving one another in in the congregation or in the broader church. that sees our merit before God, our worthiness before God as being based more on the things we do, whether it be on Sunday or certain practices, than on how we are loving God and loving one another. See, the the questions change, but the uh, the uh, the questions of what we do in the, the but the uh, the temptation, the the ways that we ultimately chip away at our faith and our, our our love for God, don't change that much. Now, the third thing I want to highlight here is probably the the most subtle of all, and and close close uh, with the the the. the question of legalism that I talked about before is is a question of what we believe um, versus what we know. And that is that that we are concerned, uh, that we get concerned more with having a right doctrine than with, again, knowing the living God, knowing Christ himself. We, uh, we are a part of a, a tradition, a, a, a denomination that is steeped in doctrine. The denomination we're a part of goes only back to 1973, but the doctrine goes back and is very ancient and has continued through. The Presbyterian and Reformed doctrine has been uh, connected with the scripture and, and rich, but oftentimes is also something that is abused and that can become an empty shell of both knowledge and practice. Jonathan Edwards again in Religious Affections talked about a godliness that is more easily feigned or or faked in words than in actions. Simply being able to regurgitate answers for a Sunday school class or for the pastor, or for whatever purpose, is very different than living out of faith that is continually seeking to know God and to love God and to know others and to love others. Right doctrine, when it is apart from a true relationship with God, I would say is more dangerous 
more dangerous to the Christian faith and more, certainly more dangerous to the person who has it and even more dangerous to those around that person than an absence of faith or even a rejection of faith. Because what is there is a hypocritical approach to God that would seek to transform other people's lives ultimately to serve the individual's purpose more than to serve the other person. Now, all these things, these, these empty, uh, these, these, these philosophies and, uh, and empty deceits according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits, um, they're, they're all present at every time in history. They're, they're always there. The, the, the ideas that somehow there's a knowledge that transcends relationship is something that was prevalent in, in this time and still now. All kinds of books are written on, on finding the secret or the, the secret understanding and the, all of that. And, and what, what, but what, what the Christian faith does that is unique in world religions what God does through Christ is found in verse 10, or excuse me, in verse 9, and that is that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so where most religions have a notion of what is right and wrong, what you should do, and some religions have a notion of a God who is other, in Christianity, the God who is other reconciles his creation by becoming part of that created order. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's a beautiful Christological statement. It draws from the, the, what we looked at back on, in chapter 1, verse uh, 15 through, uh, through 20 in the Christological uh, hymn that, that exists there. If you weren't here for that, go back and, and listen to that. But it's interesting, this, this, uh, this statement is great, it's a great Christological statement, but it's, it's interesting what Paul does from here going into verse 10, because he's not just focusing on who Christ is, or, or Christologic, the Christological truth here in verse 10. What he's doing is a little play on words that's sometimes tough to pick up in an English translation, that is, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, that is Christ. And you have been filled in him, or it's really the same word, and in you, the whole fullness of Christ has been united with you. In other words, he's, he's saying that, that Christ is the fullness of God, and Christ has put himself fully in you, so that you can do all these things. You can grow up in faith. You can walk and be rooted and built up in Him. You can identify the false teaching. You can understand it better. Christ has put Himself in you. In you is the fullness of Christ. Now, it's a different kind of thing than, than the fullness of God being in Christ. But there are similarities here. Because how could God come and dwell in the person of Christ, this human body, except that God made this human body a little bit different than other human bodies, being that uh, Mary was pregnant without having slept with a, 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 a man. Christ's body was made perfectly, and yet was still a human body. In Christ there was no sin, 
in that human body, God dwelled fully. God was able to come up and come in and set up a residence. And that is what God has done for us as human beings. When we receive Christ Jesus, he makes the human person residable, livable. That Christ can come into you. And what's characteristic of the places where God dwells? It was that whole picture of the Old Testament tabernacle and then the temple of God dwelling in the midst of his people. But it wasn't that God was just coming and setting up next to Joe and, and, and Sam and everybody else. He set up a temple in the middle of the place where he established this principle saying, I have a holiness about me that you don't have. I have a holiness about me that you don't have, but you need. And in order for me to dwell in this place, you need that holiness, that otherness. And so for Paul to make this statement, saying that the whole fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily, and then he says, and Christ dwells in you bodily, he's saying that he has made you holy and blameless and able to be resided in by God by the work that Christ has done on your behalf. And that's how he opened his letter, chapter 1, where, and, and also the beginning of chapter 2 when he talks about have Christ having reconciled us to God, having put to death those sins and made us a livable person for Christ to be in. Now, that's a powerful motivation and equipping truth for the believer. And the difference between what all these other approaches, the gross sort of doing it yourself, or even the more subtle following these these religious practices and even a form of legalism that, that seeks to win God's approval, is contrasted against God making a person holy and blameless and inhabitable so that he can enter in and live inside the person. To have a union that, again, going back to those illustrations, is like marriage. That is two becoming one. Being united with this other. In this relationship that calls for an affection of the heart before any other practices. Now, these other practices may be helpful. Observing certain festivals or Sabbaths and finding the rest in those can be helpful. Even exercising certain disciplines in what we eat at certain times can be helpful. But those things are all secondary to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, who God has made to be um, the reconciler of all things, and who God has made us to be inhabited by. That's a good place to stop. Let's stop there, and uh, we'll pick this up more next week and look more at, at what the, the, the baptism and the circumcision passages mean and, uh, and, and go from there. We pray with me? Father, thank you that you have uh, called us into relationship with you. That uh, our affection 
for you, it gives us a, a security and a steadfastness that uh, cannot be moved. We help us to walk in that and to grow into that and, and help us to identify the things in life, these, um, these philosophies and, and empty deceits that come from both human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world that would vie for our heart's affections and help us to stay rooted and connected and inhabited by Christ, who is our salvation. Lord, we thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.